Turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be reading the end of the chapter, starting in verse 57. As I've already said, John's goal as he wrote the book was that we, the readers, would believe and that believing we would have life in Jesus' name. So, not surprisingly, the topic of belief comes up numerous times in the book. And we see it again in our passage this morning. And once again, there is a distinction drawn here between those who believe and those who do not believe. But this time, the cut goes deeper than it has previously as we've been studying this. This time we see the line drawn so deep that it ends up dividing the 12 apostles. Something that should be shocking to us if we remember the work of Jesus calling these 12 to be his special disciples who were with him day in and day out. the work that he gave to them and appointed them to do. And this is a difficult fact for us to wrap our heads around. And it can be a stumbling block to us, but it shouldn't be. This should not cause us to stumble, but rather... It should renew our faith. It should renew our strength and our commitment to being followers of Jesus Christ. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John 6, starting in verse 57. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. And he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our understanding of sin needs to be what Jesus' understanding of sin is. Jesus understood sin and faith and belief in a particular way. And he teaches us, he teaches his disciples here about belief, about sin. And it's our 
tendency to want to lighten things. Uh, when, when you're saying something hard to somebody, oftentimes it's very tempting to uh, tell a joke in the middle of it, right? Because you just want to be able to breathe for a little bit. I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of saying something hard to somebody else. This is regularly my work, and so I'm telling you, if you've never had this experience, you will one day, okay? And, and, it, and you will understand what I'm saying when I, when I describe this temptation to tell jokes. And as I preach, it's often a temptation to tell jokes, which is not to say that there is no time where it's appropriate to laugh, even in a sermon, right? But it is to say that we ought not to make light what God has made heavy. We ought not to try to release tension that is given by the Holy Spirit for the conviction of our souls or the souls of those we're speaking to. And what we see here with Jesus is that he understands sin and temptation and belief in this very intense way that there's, that there's only two groups of people here. And, and when we release the tension of having to, having to decide which group we're a part of and allow people to be somewhere in the middle, in this vague, nebulous area. We've released some tension, and everyone feels like they can take a deep breath, and everyone feels a lot better, but it's not what Jesus does here. <clears throat> Jesus asks his disciples whether they want to leave as well. What a rude, inconsiderate thing to ask them. After all, everybody just left except for them. They're still there. Isn't this proof enough that they don't want to leave? Do you have to really question them and doubt that they actually want to be there, that they actually still want to be following you? The implication that Jesus gives by asking this question is that anybody could turn away because of what he said. <clears throat> Do you understand that? Anybody could turn away because of what he said. He understands the offense of what he just said. And he turns to, this, to the disciples, not because he has any doubt about what they are or aren't going to do, right? When Jesus asks questions, it's We've always got to remember he knows the answer. That doesn't make them rhetorical questions, though. He knows the answer for each of the disciples. He knows the answer for the disciples as a group. And yet he asks the question not as a rhetorical question, but looking for an answer. Now I want to take a second here and, and say... You should not be offended when people ask you whether you are a Christian. Now, I don't mean the random person on the street who you just met who's like, hey, are you a Christian? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody's offended to be asked when it's this new person that you've met. When we're offended is, is instead when we're tempted, when we've been sinning, and when somebody sees the struggle that we're going through and they ask, well, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian! How dare you ask me that question? Isn't that how you want to respond when you've been, when you've been in sin and somebody asks the question? Because the implication of their question is, when you give yourself to sin... That indicates you're not a follower of Jesus. And so the, the very act of asking the question is 
something that is tense, something that is helpful to us, and something that is very easy for us to take offense at. Very easy for us to take offense at. It's like asking somebody, do you love your mom? Of course I love my mom! Why would you even ask such a stupid question? Doesn't everybody love their mom? Well, in point of fact, no, not everybody loves their mom. How do you know whether somebody loves their mom or not? Well, by the, whether they honor their mother. Then you can tell whether they love their mother. The same is true with God. When we honor him with our actions, it indicates our love for him. Now let me, let me take this a step further. It's not just that people ask us, are you a Christian, and we get offended. Because, let's be honest, how often do you actually get asked that question? Not very often, right? More often, you're going to get asked questions, or there, people are going to imply that maybe you're not as committed to the truth as you ought to be. Maybe you're not as, um, maybe you're not living as pure a life as you're in, as as you're claiming. Maybe you're not living as uh, as faithfully on the job as you ought to be. Maybe you're being unfaithful with your words, and you're you're allowing people to believe two different things about you because that's nice and convenient and relieves tension. And, and each of those things, when somebody asks you about it, <clears throat> well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that, and, and, and they, they put a, a basic Christian tenet right there. Do you believe that God is actually sovereign in your life. Now, you've been, you've been sitting there complaining about your life. And the question that comes back to you from this faithful Christian friend is, do you believe that God is sovereign? Well, what is that? That's, that is taking sin seriously. And it works its way back all the way to, to implying, well, are you saying I'm not a Christian? And sometimes you're going to have people respond that way to you asking a simple question that was actually meant to do two things. To take sin seriously and to encourage them. Right? When you ask, do you believe that God is sovereign, to somebody who's been complaining about their life, that is a rebuke of their complaining. It's taking sin seriously. But it is also meant to strengthen and encourage them by reminding them that they are in God's hands and that he not only has given them the difficult things that, they're, that they've been sinning by complaining about, right? But also that he has a plan for the future, a plan for hope and life, a plan that's good. Right? And then the person who knows the scripture says, yeah, for those who are called according to his promises. And therefore he's implying that I'm not called and I'm not a Christian. You've got that choice. The choice is to repent and be strengthened and encouraged in your faith or to grow angry that anybody would ever question you. Don't grow angry that anyone would ever ask you the question. This is simply taking sin seriously the way Jesus does. You don't want to leave too, do you? Shouldn't make us angry. Now sometimes you'll, when you take sin seriously, you're going to get 
these kinds of accusations, well, you're not loving. You're not being loving because love believes all things and hopes all things. That's the, that's the kind of, well, you're, you, know, you shouldn't be so cynical. You shouldn't be so negative. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think bad of people, assume bad of them. And what I, want you to, what I want you to bear in mind is two things. The book of John has been clear. Jesus, it, it says he, early on it says there were crowds following him. They were praising him. They were super excited that Jesus was there. And it said Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew the heart of man. And so you must know the heart of man. It is not cynical to assume that anybody and everybody has sin in their heart and may be tempted in a particular way. It's not cynical and it's not sinful. It is simply believing about man and about sin and about man's heart what Jesus shows us and teaches us. Okay. Now the second thing is, you need to know that's in there. All right? But you also need to know that asking these questions is an act of love. Okay. Now, of course, there are ways of asking these kinds of questions without being loving. I'm, I'm not telling you to, to be unloving. I'm telling you that if you ask these difficult questions, when you push through the awkwardness and think, you know, I really think I better ask him whether he's been sleeping with his girlfriend. And the steam starts to rise in your own head because it's just like the pressure is unbelievable to not ask that kind of question. Right? I mean, you, you know that you don't want to ask the question. And you know that he's likely going to respond with, how dare you ask the question, or any number of you know, angry responses that are possible. When you push through and ask the question anyway, that is not being unloving. It's taking sin seriously the way Jesus did, and it is offering hope. It is offering an opportunity to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And what a beautiful response Peter gives here. What a wonderful response. When Jesus asks him this question that is so easy for us to be offended by when we're asked this type of question, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And so that's the, that is the opportunity that you place in front of people when you ask them these kinds of difficult questions. You place, when, when, that, that when people ask you these questions, this is the choice that's set before you. Either you can become angry or you can confess God. And you are given that opportunity to confess the Lord whether you have been in sin or not. And that's the beauty of it. Did Peter want to leave? No, he didn't. He didn't want to leave. And so he says, to whom else would we go? You have words of eternal life. I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to be with anybody else. And so when, when, when you're asked, don't get angry, and don't get even, right? <laughs> Give glory to God. Give glory to God. As Peter does here. What Peter says is true. There's nowhere else to go. Have you been sinning? Do you want to leave? Then say, yes, I want to leave, but no, I don't want to leave. I want to stay. I want to be with you, Jesus. Have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? Yes. But I want to stop. Will you help me? I've been in sin. Have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? 
No, praise God I haven't, but thank you for asking. It is such a temptation, and I'm so glad that you cared enough to ask. In both cases, you see, whether you've been sinning or not, you're given the the ability to declare God's gracious work in your life, to declare that you are a follower of him. To to say, there's nowhere else, there's no one else, I must be with Jesus. It doesn't matter what the crowds have done, it doesn't matter how many people think I'm an idiot for staying, this is where I've got to be. That's Peter. Let us respond like Peter. His words are so true. There's nowhere else to go. There's nobody else that can give eternal life. And turning away from him is always the opposite of a good idea. It is always illogical. It is always completely crazy to turn away from Jesus. The crowds that left were the idiots. The 12 disciples who stayed, they were the ones who had some sense. When you see somebody make shipwreck of their life, of their faith, somebody who has claimed the name of Jesus, who rejects the faith, who turns aside from obedience, who turns aside from faith, who turns aside from the fellowship of the believers, who who walks away from Jesus. Are you following me? It is always astounding that they would do it. If you see through the eyes of a Christian, it is always shocking. It's always it's always dumbfounding because it is a complete and utter destruction of their life that they're walking towards. And you're watching them walk towards the pit of hell and you're thinking, why would you do that? Don't do that. You must be retarded. This is, how could you do that? What benefit is there in destroying your life? giving yourself to misery, both now and for eternity? Why? Don't do it. When seen with true eyes, this can only horrify us. It can only shock us. And... and The reason is because we see the insanity of it. This is Peter's response. What a beautiful response. He says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's where we're staying. We're staying with Jesus. And then Peter continues on and he says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He he continues his his confession of faith. And what what beauty it is. We speak this way. Today, this morning, when we recited the Nicene Creed, right? Church of Jesus Christ, what do you believe? We believe. We believe. Now, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe, and, and... This is, it's good for you to say, I believe. It's also good for you to say, we believe, right? Peter says, we, and he's speaking for the twelve. You can tell that in the passage. Um, After Peter gives that confession of faith, verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them. Did you catch that little change there? It doesn't say Jesus answered him. Jesus didn't answer Peter. Jesus answered them. 
the twelve. Why did Jesus answer them? Well, because Peter was speaking for them, for all of them. And yet Jesus' response is to point out that he himself picked the twelve of them, but one of them was a devil. One of them was a devil. So much for us to learn here. We don't choose who will believe and be saved. God does. Jesus begins and ends his teaching prior to this with an explanation that it's the Father who chooses. Verse 65, we see the concluding, the second time that he says it, as he's ending. And he says, and he, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You can't come unless you've been given that gift. Granted by the Father the ability to come. If you have not been granted by the Father the ability to come, you cannot come. So what's the point? Well, I want to drive that home just so that I can say this. Do not become angry at God because of this. Do not grow angry at God because he has chosen some to save. It is so often our temptation when we see that there are some, when when we finally come to terms with seeing that there are two groups, when we finally try to look at full in the face the difficulty of that deep reality of eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, when you come face to face with that, it is always our temptation then to be angry at God. And the reason is because we just don't like it. That's it. We don't need a deeper reason than that, do we? We just don't like it. Do not become angry at God. He has saved some. One of the reasons that often we become angry is because he has not saved the group that we determined ought to be saved. And so you see your friend, your neighbor, your, your co-worker, your loved one, your brother, your son, your daughter, turn away from God, run headlong towards hell, and you read, you can't, like, he can't come unless the Father gives him the ability to come, and you just think, well, then I hate God. I hate God for not choosing him. Now, this is the insane response. Do you understand? Right there, you, are, you yourself are facing the same choice. Will you hate God or will you love him? You cannot be a Christian and hate God. That is impossible. So do not become angry at God and hate him because he has saved some. Nobody deserves to be saved. No one has the right to demand that God choose the people that you want. God has chosen. And every last person that he has chosen is an infinitely valuable gift. Has received something that they so far didn't deserve. We ought to praise God when we see 
that he has given some the gift of faith. So we do not choose who will believe and be saved. God does. Now the next thing we need to see is that those who appear to us to believe do not necessarily believe. Now this gets, you know, all right, now, preacher, it was bad enough you forcing us to admit that there are two groups. Now you're going to tell us that this group that, we, that we're all like, yay, everybody over here is saved, you're going to tell us that some of these people aren't actually in this group? Yes, that's exactly what we see here. Peter responds for the twelve, and he says, we. And we respond to, to the question, what do you believe? And, and we respond and we say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, right? And yet, do you speak for everybody in this room? No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, but what if everybody in the room says it? Then is it good? No, no. This is, this is not some magical incantation that if you can just trick people into saying these words, that voila, they're saved. It's not some sort of magical incantation that, that you can just say it yourself and you're saved. In fact, what we see here is that those who do not truly believe and yet appear to believe can even be spiritual leaders like Judas. We think of Judas today and we think of him as the bad guy, right? But you've got to place yourself into the text, the context, what's going on here. Everybody has just left Jesus except for the twelve. Judas is not the bad guy right now. Judas is one of the twelve who stayed. Judas is one of the twelve. The twelve were sent out preaching and teaching Jesus Christ, the gospel. Judas was one of the twelve, the twelve who were sent out healing and casting out evil spirits. Judas was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, chosen specially of the twelve to be part of that small group of leaders. But he did not truly believe. In fact, he was actually such an enemy that Jesus calls him a devil. And ultimately, he was such an enemy that he would betray Jesus' life. And yet, at this time, Peter and the rest of the apostles are able to say, we believe, together with Judas, and to mean it. And to have no idea that Judas was that. That enemy. Jesus knew. The apostles didn't. In fact, they didn't even later, when when Jesus makes it explicit and says, One of you will betray me tonight. The apostles don't all sit there and be like, oh, we've been looking at Judas for like three years now, Jesus. We don't know why you ever chose him. It's been clear from the beginning. No, they respond with what? Does anybody, do you guys remember how the apostles respond at that that night, the 12? They're with Jesus. He says, one of you will betray me. They all look at him and they go, Oh, God, not me. God, not me. Don't let it be me. Is it me? And, and this, is, this, is, this is the 12. How could you? You can't, you can't just look at Judas in this passage and just write him off as, well, he was the bad guy. The reason that they can't do that is because they all know themselves. They all know their own sin. They all know that they have need of a Savior, which is why they're all there saying, you have words of life. Paul is with the Ephesian elders, the group of people where you see, apart from Jesus and his twelve, 
You don't see greater tenderness and love. You don't see such a close relationship anywhere in the New Testament as you do with Paul and the Ephesian elders. And as he's leaving the Ephesian elders, what he says is that from their own group, wolves would arise to attack the sheep. Not all who claim the name of Jesus Christ are Christ followers. Not all who follow Jesus believe and have life in his name. And so what do we learn? Well, first, like the disciples, we must take warning for ourselves. Whether we have heart religion or whether we just have brain religion. Do you know what I mean by brain religion? That you're able to look up on that screen and read through those sentences and say them out loud. That's brain religion. Saying, Jesus, we know Jesus was a man of God. We know Jesus came down from heaven. We know Jesus did all these miracles. All these things are true. And yet not having believed for your own salvation. Judas didn't somehow think that Jesus was actually a wicked man. Judas knew Jesus was a good man, right? Judas didn't somehow... um, accidentally get confused and think that Jesus' miracles were all hoaxes. Jesus, Judas saw the miracles and knew they were real. He saw and believed. And so if it's possible for Judas to know the truth of what Jesus claims and yet not to have placed his own life into the hands of God by Jesus Christ's words. If it's possible for Judas to believe and yet not to believe for life, then certainly it is possible for us to believe in here, in our heads, and not here, in our hearts. And so we take warning. When you recite the creed and you say we, and you claim the faith as your own, be like Peter, not like Judas. Now was the time for Judas to repent. Well, there were all kinds of times for Judas to repent, right? But what an opportunity right here where Peter says, you have words of eternal life. Judas, right then, had the choice of whether to own that for himself or whether to simply continue being a chameleon. trying to blend in with those who had faith. But we also must take warning, not just for ourselves, but this is a warning not to simply assume that everybody is a Christian. And this is certainly a temptation for me as a pastor. I mean, listen, I look out and, and there's this group of people and what do, what, what do I want to do? I want to assume that all of you are Christians. Do you understand that? Do you see how much easier that would make my life if all of you were Christians? Then I wouldn't have to call you to repentance. But of course, I would still, wouldn't I? 
Do you see how error begets error begets error? But if I could just assume that everybody in here was a Christian, or I look out and I think, okay, well, you know, I know there's some people in here who struggle with their faith and wondering whether they're a Christian or not, and now I've sat here and I've given this warning about making sure that you're a Christian, and I've probably sent somebody into a tailspin, and, you know, what am I going to do? I better, not, I better not do that. I better not warn people to make sure they're in the faith for fear that it would discourage some people who are in the faith. No, 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 no. And you must not do this either, okay? I mean, I'm talking about my own temptation, but I want you guys to remember, you can't assume that everybody is a Christian either. Now, that doesn't mean we can't say we believe. (laughs) Say we believe with Peter. It's, it's a true testimony. It's, it's his, his, de, his declarations about Jesus are beautiful and true. The Nicene Creed is filled with wonderful statements of God and his sovereignty and his power and his salvation. But it does mean there is, there's no call to repentance, there's no call to faith that we can leave out as unnecessary. Jesus asks the question right here, you don't want to leave also, do you? And why does he ask that question? He asks that question to force in their minds the decision, do, I, I got to make it, I got to make up my mind, do I want to leave or don't I want to leave? And you know that there were the, the That they all did want to leave, right? Now now bear with me for a second. You know they all wanted to leave, right? Do you see that? Like, there were just crowds of people and they all left. There is... There, there is in every single one of us that temptation to leave with everybody else. Like, you've heard of peer pressure before, right? I mean, this is a real thing. They all wanted to leave. And yet when Jesus asks them, all of a sudden, everything is purified. Everything's purified down to that one question. Do you want to leave too? And when we respond and we say, no, we don't want to leave. That's a confession of of the faith. It's a confession of the sin, a rejection of the sin of wanting to leave. And it's a call to everybody else present to believe. Isn't it? When Peter says, we believe, when Peter says, we don't want to leave, we believe, you have the words of life, what he's saying is a call to Judas. It's a call to Thomas. It's a call to every one of the other disciples to make that faith their own with him. And that's what I'm doing here this morning with you. It's a call to you to make this faith your own with me. Now, what does this have to do with not assuming that everybody around you is a Christian? Well, just like I, as I'm preaching, cannot leave out calls to repentance and calls to faith. You, in your conversations with people, when you see their struggles... When you see their sins, when you see their weakness, when you see the choice before them, you cannot leave out 
and assume that it's all going to be hunky-dory, that after all, they're a Christian. This does not mean you assume they are not a Christian. Jesus does not assume that all of the apostles want to leave, right? I mean, that's what I explained first, that this isn't somehow this, this hateful question that comes out of such wicked assumptions. No, it's a call to them to confess their faith in him. And that's what you need to do with each other. Here in the church, with the people who who are at work with you claim to be Christians, with the people who, you know, are cultural Christians and hardly barely claim to be Christians, we want to just be like, oh good, I'm glad you're a Christian too. And then you turn around and you're like, Yikes, I don't know. <laughs> and, you think, and I'm thinking, that's where the call to live life as a Christian, that's where the call to confess Christ in your words and your actions, that's where we need to be giving that call. This is why we can't assume that everybody's a Christian. Because we know that Judas was one of the twelve. And finally, as we take this to heart, this will strengthen you for the time when Judas is revealed. Okay, this will strengthen you for the time when Judas is revealed. And that that is a harrowing time. That is a time of difficulty and temptation. When we take sin as seriously as Jesus does, when we take the division of those who are sheep and goats, as seriously as Jesus does, when we make that reality part of our core being, then we will not be dismayed when Judas is revealed as the wicked devil that Jesus describes him as. Then we will not be shocked by people leaving no matter how close to us they are, no matter how central to the church they are, no matter how great a spiritual leader they were, to you, to others, to thousands, you will not be shocked when Judas's are revealed. Now, I'm not saying you will be, you'll be happy. I'm not saying that you, that you won't be surprised But I'm saying that you will not be dismayed. You know how the psalmist uses the word dismayed? It's it's where you're crushed. It's where you're, what does it mean? It's, it's, you can't, you, you can't respond. You've got no faith left when you're dismayed. As we become like Jesus, we will not be dismayed by the lack of faith around us. And so I don't just mean those who are the closest ones who betray us. I mean, broadly speaking, we look around and we see the number of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and we see that number is such an odd number so large and yet so meaningless. So few that seem to have any real faith. And it's so tempting for us to be dismayed by looking around and seeing the lack of faith. The the pathetic weakness in churches, the pathetic weakness in ourselves, we... As we become like Jesus, we will not be dismayed 
because we'll know already how serious sin really is. Though it saddens us, as it saddened Jesus. Remember what he said. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's looking down on the city. Sometimes when you, when you think about our culture and you try to take a step back, you know, like a step up and look down and you look at the news and you, and you, look, at the, and you look at TBN and, and, you, and ultimately, of course, you end up looking at your own life, right? And Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. And what a sad statement that is, and how sad Jesus was as he said that. And so, yes, it's sad when we look around, and yet we are not dismayed. Because we remember Judas. We remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. We remember how serious sin is and how tempting it is. And most of all, we remember that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Jesus came and he gave his life. And so nothing can dismay us anymore because we are on that rock that is higher than I, higher than you, more solid than the bedrock you can dig down to. Deeper than your sin. more pure than the whitest snow. That's our hope. And so nothing and no one will dismay us. We give our life to him. Let's pray.